Hello and welcome to the next episode, teaching a child with ADHD or tutoring ADHD and how our children's brains and our brains work different having ADHD. I've got absolutely no teaching background or education background of any kind. So I've brought in the beautiful Deanna, who we've had already before, to come in and chat about her perspective on this. We have met Deanna before in another episode, but what we do know about Deanna is she has two kids. She's got a seven-year-old and a 18-month-year-old. She lives with her husband, who's a teacher. She's studying teaching, and she's a teacher's aide and a tutor of children with ADHD at the moment. So welcome to you, Deanna. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. I wanted to start off by talking briefly around self-esteem. So I notice a lot of the time with my own daughter and with other children and you know what, the grown adults that are on this podcast, a lot of us talk about self-esteem issues and a lot of it seems to stem back to you know school and people will name instances at school where they were told to try harder or switch on and they just weren't able to. I was wondering if you could talk briefly about you know ADHD and the impact of self-esteem. Absolutely. So you're completely right. When you're talking about self-confidence in children and adults with ADHD, it definitely comes back to the tasks that they had to really take on. And as children in a classroom environment, there's been studies, massive amounts of studies showing that children and people with ADHD receive more negative impact than neurotypical classmates. So you see this in, in loads of different ways and it starts off by when you're presented with new knowledge and new situations in a classroom environment, new topics, just information that you haven't learned before, you feel almost as if you've failed immediately straight off the bat, even though there was no goal to understand the content or know what was actually going on in that classroom, you almost feel like you've straight away just completely failed. And that just, that really takes a hit to a person's self-esteem whether they're a young person or they're, it's why as adults in conversations, if someone brings up a topic that we're not versed in, we'll often try and relate to it in a, from a personal experience we have had. So if someone comes up and they're a marine biologist and they're talking about the turtle season, we go, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, I remember this one time we were at Hamilton Island and we saw turtles hatch. And like, you'll try and bring those personal experiences back because you've got no confidence that you actually know what you're talking about in that area. So definitely having that stem from that childhood classroom environment, it's so important to develop the confidence in neurodiverse children and give them questions that they know the answer to before giving them something that is a little bit more troubling and normalizing that it's okay not to know everything and it's okay to learn and it's actually part of how we grow as people. So it's a huge struggle. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because having ADHD and having a lot of people on this podcast so far, that you're right, people will talk about their understanding from their own point of view. What they're actually saying is, I'm acknowledging what you're saying and I'm hearing it and here's how, this is what I'm thinking about it, but sometimes people come off self-focused. But actually, if you know how their brain works, they're actually really invested in what you're saying, but they're just using an example to express that. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes out in children all the time, which is why you've got these children in the classes that are ADHD and they have these really irrelevant thoughts or they like to go off on a tangent. We're talking about 3D shapes and all of a sudden they're talking about how the pipes work in their house because a cylinder is a pipe and a pipe is really long and we have those in our house and oh my God, dad fixed a pipe the other week and I can go on for hours just on my own brainwave and kids do it as well, but they don't have the social filter 
to condense their thoughts or to turn that tap off. And so it comes out as distracted, unfocused, that they're not actually absorbing what's going on. And it couldn't be further from the truth. They're just making it so that they can actually learn the content. So having a a children, especially in an early years classroom, I work in a school readiness program where a lot of these children don't have diagnosis, don't have any of that. And you really just have to teach to that individual. And that's what we do. We come up with all these strategies on how to deliver this learning to children based on their personal needs, not on a label or, or any other curriculum. So it stems even further into tutoring. You can do it to even more of an individualized capacity. When I'm tutoring one-on-one to kids with ADHD, I have this amazing kid at the moment that I'm tutoring and they initially came to me with problems with how they actually lay out their work, so their neatness and their tidiness. And I was able to empathize with that person because their brain is moving at a million miles an hour. They know the content. They're so very good at that content, but they're not able to get it down on paper fast enough and it results in quite messy work. And so coming up with these strategies on how to step out the process, but even just telling a child that, by the way, when you want to show this answer, you need to include all the steps that happen in your head. Just telling them that they have to do that means, oh, okay, well, I didn't know. No one told me. When they say show you're working, they didn't realize that meant, okay, so that's working in my head. That's what the working is. Defining that, letting them know that that's a step they have to take and then putting together a process they can follow for that is it's part of that need to really yeah, develop a topic understanding. I think we talk a lot about this podcast that the world is, you know, probably not set up great for neurodiverse people. So, for example, you know, we've talked a lot about getting a diagnosis and, and how that looks and how difficult that can be for someone with ADHD with the amount of paperwork and all of the organisation and, you know, the carry-on that you've got to have to get that diagnosis. And I would imagine the schooling system would be the same because you've got people that brains might not work or be patient enough to show the workings out to get the A and then I would imagine by default they're going to go probably not going to reach their potential necessarily as easily. Absolutely and it all comes down to the awareness that the teachers have on this topic and how well they know neurodiversities. A lot of schools don't have any PD classroom teachers for this approach and not just for ADHD, for all sorts of different learning needs and learning support needs. And so because of that, it can be really hard for a child to get that understanding, especially if their parents are not aware because they're not in the classroom with them. They don't make those observations. So you can definitely have children who are, and often it comes out with behavior issues these behavior issues need to be solved. And how do we do that? Well, this is the list of behavior needs, but no one's making the connection that that could be something deeper. Or you could be in an environment like my daughter's school where every teacher has a general training surrounding inclusive learning. So they're able to identify what's going on and what it might lead to and have a beautiful toolkit of resources and strategies to be able to provide those children. It's not in every school. It should be, but it's not. And because of that, you have to do a lot of advocating as a parent, but that can be really hard because they're asking you questions like, how do they feel when they experience these symptoms? And you go, I don't know, I'm not experiencing them. And I think that's one of the superpowers of being someone who has ADHD and teaching and tutoring children with ADHD. I have that perspective, that awareness to a degree. I have somewhat of an understanding of how this person might feel 
And so a lot of my conversations that I have surrounding how to manage ADHD with these children and how to help is, is a lot of parent awareness and it's a lot of big picture solutions that aren't direct for that one thing. And it's so funny because when I, when I dictate specific solutions for a specific challenge that that child might be having, like the messy working, it resolved itself within a week and a half. By the time I'd seen that child on, in, on their next tutoring session, you know, I had feedback from the teachers saying, oh my gosh, we've seen like this huge, incredible, it's like switching a light on. So if you know how the children are thinking, if you can understand and empathize with their train of thought, you can offer solutions that might work. And it's work, but it's, sometimes it's actually quite a simple solution if you can see it from that person's perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've done an episode recently on advocating for your child at school and both myself and the interviewee, we, you know, we did talk about how the changes that you need or you want aren't necessarily massive, but there is that awareness around ADHD and what it looks like because I suppose if you kept saying to that child, show all your workings out or be neater, that's not necessarily talking to the way their brain works at all, is it? If the teacher was just repeating to the student, you know, show your workings out or be less messy, be more tidy, that child is not understanding or getting what that message at all. And it's really interesting you say that the repetition of the same phrase because I experienced it as a learner at uni this semester with a tutor who actually had no experience in education. They were tutoring based on their, like their ability to public speak and their ability to deliver information. They don't have any actual experience in combating their or dealing with different questions in a classroom environment. So it was actually really annoying. It was in a maths class and my I'm not great at math. It's not my strength because I'm not interested in it. So I never really applied myself. And, you know, it's more complex and there's only really one way to explain a lot of things, but there's not. There's a lot of ways. And that's what I found out in this class. But we were sitting down figuring out an equation and it was on ratios and it was on a map scaling. And so the question was supposed to be in meters, the unit measure. But I was wondering how they got that because if it's a map, usually it's in one centimeter equals one kilometer or 10,000 kilometers or it's usually a bigger figure. So I was wondering how they came to that assumption. And it was like this. It was the interaction was so frustrating for me because I was restructuring my question over and over again. I was saying, and here's just like a very simplified version of this conversation was, oh, how much are your oranges? And the tutor would respond with, well, apples are 49 cents each. And I, okay, not useful information, but let's try that again. If I was to purchase an orange, how much would you want for that? And then he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yep, yep. Apples are 49 cents. And then I've got, oh my gosh, okay, okay, so this is not working. So if I go, okay, if I, I'm not discussing apples, but if I was to take an orange, I have some money for it, would you require a dollar or would you require $5 or what kind of compensation would you want for that orange? And he would go, ah, yes, okay, well, I understand what's going on now. I'm like, oh, amazing, yes, great. So, so what's the answer? He goes, well, apples are 49 cents. I'm like, oh my gosh. And at this point, the entire class was like screaming at this tutor, like, this is what she's asking. She's asking this. And I'm like, guys, it's fine. I'll figure it out. Leave me be. 
I'll sort it out myself. Like I'll go and I went to see another person who does he does, I went to the learning support department and I said hey look honestly I've had a weird interaction I can't let it go I need to figure out why this is why this is the why you just assume this in a maths equation and they've gone oh yeah it's because the unit measure that you offered prior to that was in meters so they then you assume that the answer's in meters I'm like is that going to be the same for every question and then they go into discussing with me the different language patterns that are used in in problem solving and we sit there for an hour discussing the answer to this and I got so much from it that I actually recorded the whole conversation so I could go back and listen to it again and re-understand it. So it's one of the, it's those sort of learning environments that our kids are faced with every day, but they don't have the confidence to be able to say, no, that way you phrased it doesn't work for my brain. I need you to give me another, a different way of phrasing that answer because I do not understand it's not like that. They're told to sit down and behave and that, that would be considered misbehavior or disrespect to their teacher. But it's not, it's not disrespect. It's just them trying to comprehend and understand what's going on. And a lot of kids don't know what words to use when they're asking for help. I'm actually writing a book on for kids on asking for help at the moment and that self-advocation, normalizing that in the classroom or in any environment. And it's something that there's just not enough information out there for kids to do. I think that's such a great comment around being confident to ask for help. And this might go back to a comment I made in the advocating episode where we were talking about, I believe, personal opinion and environment is the most important thing. That's just my opinion, right? I've noticed with my daughter particularly, if the environment is comfortable and she's feeling very comfortable and that she's not going to get into trouble, for example, she will put up her hand quite frequently that she doesn't really understand what's happening. Yep. And it's that collective as well. Yeah, exactly. So, but if she's sitting there and she doesn't feel, or she's been in trouble for not understanding, which happens probably quite often, then she's got another way where she will just curl into herself internally, which we've all done and gone, well, I don't understand apples and oranges. I don't understand media units and I'm not very good at this subject and everyone gets it. And I've asked the question a couple of times, you've not answered me. And then there's that just complete self-esteem, you know, internal fragile kind of dying inside heartbroken that I think we've all felt. So I suppose having that understanding, I think, about how ADHD works would be amazing to have in schools. I think we've also got to really discuss that ADHD isn't funded through the NDIS and it isn't funded through the schools. So anyone listening that has an ADHD child, you know, we need to be aware that when we're asking for things, the school is not getting any funding. So often we do get blockages around extra help. Exactly. And it's really hard because then you have to go private and that can be really expensive, especially considering we have no assistance in the government systems at the moment. Yeah. And I think convenience as well. People have got multiple children, they're working. And an episode I'd love to do is the amount of therapies that we are expected as mothers to drive around to. So if you put on top of that tutoring and, you know, social groups and a bit of OT or speech or whatever it is, a bit of psych, you know, you, you are the mum taxi that I always thought was the stupidest sticker alive. You have become the mum taxi yeah. Um, yeah, without exactly. any extra support at all. So tutoring is not only inconvenient financially, but it can be physically inconvenient as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with that. It's not as accessible as it really needs to be. 
And sometimes like, and this is the really hard, it's a really hard hit or miss situation in when you are actually getting these services. It is such an effort to be there. It is such an effort to physically get there, to financially commit to it and then mentally support that when you get there, if that tutor or that therapist or that that teaching person isn't actually versed in what your child needs, then it can be really detrimental. It can be like a dramatic fall from what you were anticipating to be a great solution. You've done all this work, all this research, you've checked the mums groups for referrals, you've you know, vetted them with your friend who's a teacher in five states away. Like you've, you've tried your hardest to find that information for your child and then you rock up and they actually have never seen a neurodiverse person in their life. It's, and you, oh, they've got ADHD, but then they've, all they've got are the social misconceptions of that and all of this research that was preliminary, preliminarily done on, you know, seven-year-old boys in classroom environments. Like you've not got the complexities of, of this neurodiversity in your pocket, you've got, you know, this old research and old theories and old misconceptions that are approached with this. So yeah, it's really hard because you go to all this effort and then it can, it can work out or it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. Or they could just start teaching your child the exact same way that the teacher is. And then you just think, Oh my God, I'm just, I'm so frustrated. So here's a question for you. For the ADHD mums or parents out there that are maybe neurotypical, their kids that have ADHD, if let's say they can't afford tutoring or it's inconvenient or they don't have anyone available to them and their children are battling at school, what could we as parents do to at least try and help? Write down some really articulate questions, first of all. Asking questions is going to be your key to getting an education or an insight into what is happening in a classroom environment. Your teachers, their job is there to support their students. That is what they're, they're supporting a learning environment for those kids. And that includes, includes their social emotional well-being. So writing down, understanding what their challenges are in a classroom. If you don't know what they are or you've been to a parent-teach interview and they've sort of battered you off, then you can actually write down a, a list of specific questions. You can send it in an email or you can call up and do it. I recommend an email because then it's a paper trail as well. So you can write down an email questions like, what are my child's challenges in their learning environment? What is What are the current strategies that you're using to facilitate their learning and managing their challenges? You can ask questions like, if I was to engage a private tutor, what would you recommend them start with? And then you can ask on how are their challenges impacting them educationally? So they, your teachers should have an understanding of where they are in terms of what milestones they're reaching on the Australian curriculum and understanding what sort of behaviour management systems are in place at that school and if that system works for your child. Um, once you have that information, you can then look up, you know, if they say, right, well, they just won't sit still. They just won't sit still. They misbehave. They call out all of these little challenges that you're experiencing. You can actually research the symptom or the behavior. Don't research the label. So if you're a parent, you're wanting to help your child, you can go through on, you can just Google it, try and find Australian resources, try and find Australian recommendations because it will be applicable to our education environments that we have in Australia and it will be specific to our curriculum. So being able to have, like, for example, if the challenge is that a child just won't sit still, they might be sensory seeking. They might be trying to find ways to get sensory input or they might be needing to sensory output. 
And a great solution to that is a rubber band. If they're old enough to have a rubber band, preppies probably not. But if they're in year four or five where they're a little bit older and you, you're sitting through really long periods of time where you're listening and you're in, trying to get communication in, you, they, if they sit there with a rubber band and they pull it apart and put it back together or they're wrapping a rubber band around a peg and then the peg is being pulled apart and put back together, that or fidget spinners and different fidgeting toys might help that child. If they're in an environment where they're in year one or two and they just won't sit still, then having like they have sensory tools for that. So there's these special seats that are called wobble stools that they can sit on and they can wobble back and forth. There are these other ones that are kind of like those exercise balls with the little pokey bits out of them. They can sit and roll around on one of them. It's a miniature version and then that gives them a sensory input. So little solutions like that, they, these are all on Google. You can go, okay, my child will not sit still during class solutions. And if you Google that, you'll be able to come up with some solutions and advocate for that in your child's classroom. You can see if they work at home. A lot of it, especially around those early years, is about emotional regulation and being able to actually recognize what that looks like, what that feels like, what it sounds like, how you deal with it and how you interact with it. And again, Google is Google has a bunch of really great solutions out there. There are a lot of Instagram accounts that have access to education for people who are neurodiverse, a lot of teaching accounts that specialize in that. But first and foremost, keep the communication open with your school and with your, not just with the classroom teacher, and get a direct contact with the learning support office if your school has one. And then further, like whoever is another party to include in that conversation is really important to do that because there might be more support out there that you might not know about in the school environment because they don't advertise it, especially in the state, in the state system. So asking those really important questions, getting that input, that education response, and then finding some solutions on your own back if you have the capacity to. And you can do that without an education background. It could be that your child is excelling in in reading because they're really into reading and then they're just bored because the readers they've been given are not on the level that they should be in. And then in that situation, you could easily give them a, a more difficult reader or take them to the library or ask your library at your school to give them more challenging novels for them and then engaging that way as well. So there, there are so many different ways that you can be part of your child's education journey, especially that they need that support, that avocation, that normalcy and that value in their education as well, moving through their, their journey with it. Yeah, beautiful. And I think it's one of the advantages that we have, and there's not many with ADHD, but one of the advantages that we have as women and mothers is that we have an understanding of, of what, what our child is, is thinking and doing at times. So I think as well, sometimes things that might seem very obvious to maybe a neurotypical person doesn't seem obvious to someone who's neurodiverse. I notice that a lot of the time, it, I feel so silly even saying this, but sometimes homework comes home from my grade two and my preppy's classroom. So it's obviously not a high level. And I'd actually don't understand what it is. It's like they've given half the story at times. And then I'm thinking, oh, there must be something missing here. So I'm asking my child and they're like, I don't really know. And I'm looking at this going, doesn't seem like there's enough information. It's like there's all this assumed knowledge that maybe I don't have. And so I wonder sometimes if that there's just a lot of information that just seems, it honestly seems missing to me. And then all these other parents just seem to understand what's going on. And I'm there going, did I miss a piece of paper? I can't even, I don't even know what's happening here. 
Absolutely. And look, it's such a profound problem, especially in those early years when they do start to introduce homework. And a lot of the time, what my my child brings home in year two is a sheet of black and white paper with a lot of writing on it. And she looks at it and she's like, no, I can't, I'm not reading that. Absolutely not. What do you mean? I can't do it. It's too much work. And I've got, okay. So we have a set of highlighters that we keep in a pen cup, very close to our dining table because that's where she does her homework. And whenever she gets home and when she has homework, she goes, mom, I've got homework. I'm like, great, let's sit down. I get a purple highlighter or I get different colored highlighters to help me out. So I might get the purple highlighter and find on the page the first job that I need to do with that child. And I box up the job and I go, that's your purple job. And then I keep going and I find, I break it down to smaller pieces so that she can then go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But this is, this is such a prominent topic because it happens with problem-solving questions in maths, especially with like the standardized testing. You know, how you interpret a question, there's a lot of assumed knowledge and a lot of it is actually there to trick you or to sort of derail your thinking. But for neurodiverse people, it's already derailed. We're, we're not even on a track, mate. We're not even on, in a train. Like there's no railing. We're done. It's just a bunch of gibberish. So we've gone through and we've gone, well, I've read the question five times and nothing makes sense. And that's when I get out the red, the, the black Sharpie. And we start to redact the information we absolutely know has absolutely no value in the conversation. And we just get rid of them forever. They're gone. And then we really look at, okay, look, I think that's important information, but I don't really know what they're saying. And that's when we need to start asking more questions and have more detailed information there. All of the teachers, this is like a, an education, it's not a secret, but it's just an education thing that teachers don't feel the need to really pass on to their parents or their students is that every single assessment, every single piece of homework, every single part of either built assessments like summative assessments or formative assessments is there is a rubric or a criteria or some form of marking apparatus attached to that piece of that knowledge and being able to decipher what that is, that you can just ask. You can say, okay, so what is this? What's the purpose of this assignment? Just so we know. Because at the end of it, all you're trying to find is what the point is <laughs> and what the real purpose is of that piece of learning. So having that direct question and just be like, look, I'm not being rude. I'm just trying to and like interpret what's happening. What is the actual point of this piece of work? What are they learning? Because at the end of the day, you might be able to facilitate a different learning path for that skill, for that child, which your teacher should be able to provide. If they're learning how to count numbers, but they're trying to put this like fun little graph about numbers one to 100, but it, it doesn't make sense to you guys, it, it might not make sense to anyone, but the teacher thinks it's really clever and it's something that they've, they've found success with in another group, but they might need to shake it up. They might need to do a different graph or a different picture and that's okay. It's part of the job to give a diverse amount of learning needs and learning support for those kids. So yeah, it's, it's definitely that hidden language, the hidden communication is that's actually why we, why I had that whole problem with the oranges and apples with my tutoring session because there was hidden knowledge. And that hidden knowledge is everywhere. It's in social interactions. It's in literal education learning. It's in, you know, it's hidden in invitations that you get from friends and family. Oh, we kindly advise that we love your children, but keep them at home. Ha ha ha. It's like, no, they're telling you not to bring your kids to the wedding, but they're not just going to outwardly tell you, but that's what you need. We need to be outwardly told. 
And that kind of direct communication is something that I have with my children's school. They are very aware that I'm super direct. And it's something that I tried to tiptoe around my whole adolescence through school. And it didn't work for me. And I ended up being this chronic people pleaser. And now as an adult, I just go, well, I'm just going to be blunt and honest about things. It's lost me a few relationships, but it's gained me better ones. I love what you're saying. And it does worry me a little bit. Like, for example, I went to a parent teacher recently for my son's prep. And, you know, we had this small chat. It was really I don't know. It was a lot of small talk. I was, and I'm not a small talk person, so I was a bit confused. But anyway, I was trying to go along for the ride on this thing. And then they said, oh, we're going to be introducing homework. And I was like, oh, that seems good. She starts telling me and I'm like, I don't even know what she's saying. I can't hear her because I'm thinking all I'm hearing is this is high pressure and I need to know what's going on here. So as soon as I know it's high pressure and I need to follow, I completely switch off. But I'm smiling and nodding and she would think that I've totally got it. Then she gives me this book that I don't understand what it is. I put it in my car. The next term starts and I'm noticing everybody else with homework and everybody else doing all these things and I have no idea what's happening. I eventually think something happened at that parent teacher and I remember that there is a random book in my car. I finally get out this thing and how many to how many people does it take to figure out a prep kid's homework? Well, it takes two people in my house. My <laughs> husband and I still did not understand what it was. And then in the end, I said, I'm just going to write an email because none of this is making any sense to me. And it did worry me a little bit because my husband also has ADHD. And I was a little concerned about how my poor child is going to fare in the schooling system when his own parents can't understand this pretty simple homework because it was like, move to the yellow piece of paper after the red, but then you can only do that when you've rung the bell and you know this other stuff was so complex and then it was like and then you'll be given readers but not until you've passed this other thing and I'm like oh we'll just wait till we're told I don't know and it's one of those things homework is a really hot topic amongst the teaching community at the moment it has been for years but before I jump into that the the teacher like the the situation you're talking about with this sort of complex process for prep information it sounds to me like she's trying to build the teacher is trying to build engagement and is trying to build these like these sort of milestones for the kids to work towards and like oh when you get to do this you get to move through to this stage and like it's very much like a video game in that you reach new levels and it's exciting and there's confetti every time you do it but it, it, it's complex and Sometimes the complex things work, but then other times you get friction because this is learning that you have to facilitate at home and abide by these weird structures that you've not actually been explained how they work properly. And so, you know, that brings me to the idea of homework itself. It was originally introduced to get more learning done at home or to follow up learning. And it's been disproven the effectiveness of homework. It's my opinion that homework is actually an ineffective learning strategy and it shouldn't be used in schools at the moment. Just purely because when you take children who have spent six hours in learning environments, you bring them home, they have a snack, they get changed out of their uniform, and then they have to sit down and do work that they've learned that day. It's disjointed and it's disconnected. A lot of homework is review, but a lot of it isn't. There's some homework that introduces new content or it's a new way of doing the same content they've learned, but it's not the content that they've used. So individual learning programs, some of them don't include homework. So we've actually taken the pressure of homework off in our house. If we have 
a child who's, you know, if one of the kids is sick or to be honest, I've forgotten homework regularly. I forget because it's not important. It's not a priority in my head. So because of that, you know, she doesn't get, my daughter doesn't get the prompt that we need to do homework this week, but she'll often feel like she's done something wrong when she doesn't complete homework. So we've normalized that homework is, it's great, but it's additional work that you can do and that you should do, you know, because it's something your teachers asked you to do. But if it's causing more stress than it's worth, then it's not worth doing. So having that conversation around exceptions to homework is something we've done in our house. But yeah, I don't, I don't believe that homework is an effective way to process the learning from that day. All of your learning, you have, you know, the teachers have six hours to do that learning in. I don't think that it should be a home environment to do structured learning when you have a structured learning environment outside of the home. Yeah, I hear you. And I think having ADHD, you know, for me, education and homework and schooling is an an area of interest. So, you know, as soon as she, she probably did explain it to me really well. And I think it's exactly what you said. It's that engagement process. And I, she's actually one of the best teachers I've ever met. So she's obviously tried to explain it to me. I've switched off under pressure and also it's not an area that I'm interested in at all. So I've switched off and then you, then I suppose you've got to be aware that, that your kid is also switching off if it's not an area of their interest. You've got two people, so you've got no one prompting, no one's interested and then, you know, they're under pressure or maybe perhaps getting into trouble if they're not then submitting that homework as they get older particularly. And I just feel for these kids that are, you know, losing their confidence because, if it's an area, you know, even just hearing you talk about the meters and the kilometers and the problem solving questions, I just feel like my head was flooded <laughs> with examples of me sitting there under pressure, sweating, thinking, how does every, I don't even know what this question means. And that can be really in- confronting for our kids and off-putting for them. And it's, I just think it's really sad. Yeah, it is. And taking that pressure off those kids when they are in those environments and you can see that they're stressing out about it you know, it's important for them to get a bigger perspective on life. And that's situations where I would, you know, my daughter's come home and she's learned a new topic at school and she's been so worked up and worried about it. She's felt like she's failed because it's an introduction of a new topic that we've actually broken it down together, but also said it's okay not to know all this straight away. And then, you know, we've gone that, that weekend, we've gone on a nature walk somewhere new and see that there's actually so much to the world outside of the school environment because, you know, they spend five days a week there. So giving them that world, that outer world experience, it really grounds them to the belief that there are things that are more important in the world than understanding your three times tables in this current moment. And I think that's sort of catastrophizing that we do as ADHD is it's really normal. It's also something that we can, we can really alleviate. Mm. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Deanna. It's been such a pleasure in getting someone, you know, with ADHD themselves, you know, with a teacher husband and you're studying and, you know, you're working in that ADHD tutoring space. I think your knowledge has just been so important. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. It's been awesome. Is there anything that I've missed, Deanna, that you want to mention? I think as any parents, whether you're neurodiverse, you have neurodiverse kids or you're neurotypical, the awareness surrounding the curriculum and how that works in Australia is really important to know. Anyone can jump on and look at the Australian curriculum and see what our children are being expected to learn across the year. 
So jumping on and having more awareness of that, it's getting to be more user-friendly, the platform, but at least just having some sort of perspective on what they're learning this year and being involved in your child's learning journey and to that capacity is something that anyone could do. Yeah, beautiful. Well, look, thank you so much, Deanna, and I hope to get you back on another time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jane.